You ready? Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Our guest today was the center of attention in Kenneth Starr's 1994 media-frenzied trial of President Clinton and the Whitewater investigation, Miss Susan McDougall. As a young lady, this small town, Washita Baptist College student, was swept off her feet by the flamboyant, worldly, and well-read campus professor, Mr. Jim McDougall. After a whirlwind courtship filled with impressive parties and introductions to important politicians and successful businessmen, Susan found herself married to Jim, a man much older than herself, who unknowingly to both of them at the time suffered from a mental illness that would later be diagnosed as bipolar disorder. In her book aptly titled The Girl That Wouldn't Talk, Susan tells her side of the story from the beginning of her life in Camden, Arkansas, to finding herself shackled and jailed in no less than seven prisons over a two-year period, a cruel tactic known as diesel therapy by the prosecution. This is a disheartening story, an eye-opener into the abuse of judicial power, fake media, and corrupt politics. But it is also a story of how one woman took a stand to speak no more and unexpectedly took her life back. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the table and microphone the strong, courageous, well-read, and a once too naive young lady, the notable Miss Susan McDougall. I think we're done. I think that's all we need to know. (laughs) (laughs) I myself am impressed. (laughs) That really is And the marriage sounds so much more fun than it actually was at the time. Um, Jim was 14 years older than me, so that's really not that much older. He just looked old. That's um, pretty much old. That's pretty old. Is How it, old were you? I was... Uh, 18, 19? Uh, 22. I'd graduated from college. But not when you met him and started dating not when him. I'm, no, no, not when I met him. But it was the year before, and he always had a trip to Washington, and the seniors went, and that's where I met him, and then I married him after college. And So you're 20, and he's 15 years older. That's almost twice your age, if you look at it like that. He was old. I get it. I, I'm totally on your side now. It was. He was yeah, old. Yeah. You're nice. You're always nice. He so. was funny, though. He was really funny, and that went a long way toward bridging the gap in the ages. He talked like you were reading the greatest book in the world. His Just talking with him every day was hilarious and funny. I never saw anyone who didn't love talking to him because he was a uh, a guy who leaned into the story with you and had all the facts and all of the color and he knew everything to a 22 year old girl from Camden, Arkansas. It really was astonishing. You were born in Camden, Arkansas. Tell us about your mother and father and how they met. I was not. My father was in the U.S. military and he met my mother during the Second World War in a bomb shelter when the Nazis were trying to kill everyone in Europe. My mother was very impressed with the tall, six-foot-two, blonde, blue-eyed, handsome guy from Arkansas, and went and she took him home and fed him, and that was the end of that story. Or the beginning of that story. Yeah, that was the end of the meeting, but the beginning of life. And I was born in Heidelberg, seven brothers and sisters, and they were married all over Europe where my dad was stationed. So we had quite a life growing up, and we all felt like we were in the Army. Every time my dad got, you know, papers to move we all packed our little bags and went wherever he went so we were an army family we were a military family all for one and one for all stand up for your country how old were you when you got to salute the flag thank you say the pledge of allegiance Allegiance. no america the beautiful we were a very military family growing up and that you gave speeches at the american legion didn't you? i won an award from the american legion and a scholarship because we were true believers my mother was belgian and my mother saw what the nazis were doing to europe and the only thing that stopped them were the american troops that came to her hometown and she thought this is a country that comes where they know no one and saves people's lives she thought it was the greatest 
country ever. She couldn't wait to move here and to be American. And, and she, she raised all of us. And in then that she way. ends up in Camden. I bet she was a little shocked. She was. <laughs> she was. She yes, she was from a huge uh, university city in Belgium and had gone to school to be a doctor when the Nazis closed the the schools to um, anyone who. So Camden doesn't have an Air Force base. Why Camden? Um, I uh, my dad was. Oh, that's his family's from there. there. Oh, yes, gotcha. from around there. Mm-hmm. So why did you decide to go to OBU, Washita Baptist University? I think it was because I didn't decide. My parents wanted me to be close. I was a, our family's very tight-knit, and um, they did not want me to leave. In fact, the first weekend I went to Washita, I went back home, and everyone was lined up <clears throat> in the driveway waiting for me. And I got out of the car, and my dad said, you don't have to go. And I was thinking, well, good, because I miss all you all. My mother said, oh, did you? she has to go back. Yeah, we were just very close. Um, so you're at OBU. You're studying what? Um, Do you remember? Uh, I was, the way I met Jimmy Dougal was taking political science courses. He was um, head of the political science department at Washita. And I took some political science courses. I was interested in that. Was that your major? No, it wasn't. Uh, speech was my major. Oh. Uh, and then uh, how did he ask you out? How did you first end up going out with him? Um, I locked his office door. I was, I was doing some work for another uh, professor in there. And by accident, I locked his door and he kicked the door down. And I thought, this is a guy I need to know. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Looking back on it, that was the beginning of of my I should have run but actually I thought this guy kicked this huge wooden door down because it was locked and we could have gotten a key but I thought it was rather chivalrous I was outside the office needed to get in I know yeah I love the faces you two were making why weren't you there at the time where were you speaks to your I feel like your naivety yeah like oh this guy's cool he's kicking down doors like yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and he's scrawny he doesn't look like he could kick down doors, does he? Uh, he wasn't scrawny. He wasn't? He, he wasn't. I mm-hmm. remember. He was tall and thin, ah. but he wasn't scrawny. He mm. was pretty, pretty macho guy. So what was the courtship like? Um, listening to him talk, just listening to him and, and meeting a bunch of his friends. <clears throat> he'd worked for Senator Fulbright, and he knew most of the, he'd worked on the Hill for uh, Senator McClellan. Um, you and you met was, Claudia and Bob Riley. Through him. Is that correct? That's right. They were his closest friends, I would say, because when Bob became governor for that short period of time, when Senator Pryor, was it Pryor that went to Washington and there was a a wait for the election, he had been appointed. And Bob was uh, in the governor's office and Jim helped him run it. And uh, Bob Riley was a lieutenant governor at the time? That's right. And And became governor. And became governor. And Jim helped him run that. Did y'all move? Were you married at that time? No. That was long before. And you met Bill and Hillary Clinton during that time? Well, yes. Because um, they were at parties you went to. Bill Clinton had worked for Fulbright. Jim had gotten him the job. They were like uh, Bill looked up to Jim. He had worked for Fulbright forever, and that was a pretty prestigious appointment at the time. And um, he loved Bill Clinton, just loved him, thought he was funny and smart and a great uh, person to know in Arkansas in upcoming politics. You know, he was going to be great, and was, Jim could see that. What was Bill's position at the time? He wasn't governor. No, he was He was a kid driving Fulbright around in an election when Jim met him. That was his first job, was driving Fulbright around and losing the car. He was always <laughs> losing the car, and Fulbright was furious. He said, who is this you've hired to drive me around? He never knows where he's parked the car. And so that was the beginning of the funny stories about Bill Clinton working for Fulbright and Jim being, you know, his boss. And, and didn't Bill Clinton talk Fulbright's ear off, and he one time said something like, don't ever let that kid drive me around anymore? That's in the book, I think, yes. Yeah, I'm like, I can just hear Bill Clinton talking somebody's ear off. Yeah, and thinking they want to hear it, you know. Uh, never being shy about talking anybody's ear off. Yes, I'm sure they want to hear from me would have been the attitude. Yeah, and uh, I remember in the book you mentioned meeting Jim Guy Tucker, who was at the time breathtakingly handsome. True. 
He had, there were posters in my dorm. I was still in school. There were posters in my dorm of Jim Guy. Because he was, what was he at that time? Attorney General. And girls had posters of him in your in your dorm room? Oh, like yes. a model? Yeah, like a big, like maybe vote for Jim Guy Tucker. These huge posters in their room. Oh, my he, gosh. He was startlingly good. Startlingly. And I agree. nice. Uh-huh. And well-spoken and well-educated. I mean, this is not someone you just bump into on the streets. Ernie Dumas called him a swashbuckler because he was a Marine and he... Well, he wasn't he the one that sailed on a freight ship across the Pacific? During the Vietnam War yeah, because just because he, he wanted to go take pictures. Yeah, and <laughs> he uh, infiltrated the prison to find out what was mm-hmm. problem with the prisons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was, a, he was very... Swashbuckler. Swashbuckler, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, your wedding day. Tell us about your wedding day. So Jim's kind of, you haven't really said yes, so to speak, to Jim about the wedding. He's just kind of railroaded you into this wedding. Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. I think that's probably true. I, it was like I didn't have a plan. And he had a plan. And I thought, well, I can do this for a while. And so that was kind of the thinking at the time. It was the 70s. Let's not forget. It's not today. And um, we got married at a little house that he had bought out in the country that was once a goat house, and he had redone it with all kinds of crazy wallpaper and things. It was funny. When you walked in, you had to laugh because Jim had done the decorating himself. Oh, I'd be furious. Oh, oh, oh no, no, no. He was living there. I, I, I wasn't living there, and I didn't care. I mean, oh. I, no, this is a goat house. This is not a house you really get your emotions involved in. Oh, okay. Um, and I, the story, I think, is in the book where I'm lying, lying on, the, on the rug, the new carpet in the house, and the, whatever is, gets on goats is crawling. Across. Fleas? No, uh, legs and things like that. Spiders? Ticks, something Ticks. like that, yeah. And you could just see them. I mean, it's not like he had the place fumigated or anything. He just laid very expensive, lovely carpet and had the thing painted and and on top of the dirt floor i don't know i didn't ask those questions i'm just saying it wasn't well done (laughs) and and it was frightening and it had the only heat in the house was a a pot-bellied stove that had a pipe like lincoln must have lived with and there was no stove or anything in the kitchen and, and no microwave there was i don't even think microwaves were made yet there was just cabinets and a refrigerator what a paradox of a yeah, we had Fulbright there once. We we had him to lunch. and uh, In the goat house? Yes, and Mrs. Fulbright said, I don't believe I've ever seen a kitchen that have a stove in it. <laughs> <laughs> Jim didn't care. I mean, really, that sort of uh, accoutrement, that sort of, you know, dressing things up, it is what it is. Come see us. Yeah, we had Bill Clinton stay there one night. It was just what it was, you know. It's like camping out almost. So you got married. No, it had nice furniture. It had very expensive, nice furniture in the goat house. Goat house, yes. So you got married in the front yard of the goat house. That's true. Tell us about that. And I bet a lot of people came to that. No, not really. Uh Uh, Bill Clinton came. Bob and Claudia came. Bob uh, married us. You know, he was blind, so he didn't have anything to read from. And he just kept saying the same thing over and over again. Do you do you take this person? Do you take this person? Do you? And I thought, my God, we're going to be here all day. He, he didn't know the lines, evidently. It was very funny. You were barefoot. I was barefoot. But it was the 70s. I had flowers in my hair. I had a long 70s dress. I think in the book you said it had been raining and there was mud. Oh, there had been raining, yes. Yes. And the little flowers that had been planted and put out and everything, they were gone. They were in the mud. Yes, it looked like a mud track. So but it, it was what it was. It yeah. wasn't like either of us said, oh, you're oh my de- God, we, we have to reboot. Yeah. It's you're, like everyone's coming. You're not putting on airs, that's for sure. No, that would not be something we ever do. Yes. What is Jim's business when you met him? That really would have been, um, I think, what the worst thing that Jim would have seen in someone is that they were putting on airs. He didn't like that. Yeah, Fulbright didn't do that. I mean, Fulbright would buy a peach in the grocery store and complain about how much it cost. It's a multi-billionaire. I mean, no heirs. Yeah. You know? Everybody's so pretentious these days, it we, seems like. We had bought this bank downtown, and we really spent a lot of money making it cool inside. 
and he had an office that was upstairs that was just really beautiful and soft and he wouldn't go up there he I could not get him in his office when I finally got him in there Bill Clinton came from running one day and got sweat on his leather chairs in there he said this is why we don't need these things we just need to you know stay in the basics look at the sweat on the chairs (laughs) (laughs) the things you remember I think you have to laugh I think you have to laugh oh it's hilarious you have yeah. to, yeah, and he was funny, mm-hmm. and he thought he was funny, and everyone thought he was funny. What was Jim's business? Real estate? He was good at it, too, wasn't he? When you married him, was it real estate? Yes. He was in, mostly, you know, working in politics, local politics. Um, if you go to the polls, remember voice and make him your choice. Arkansas's own Sam Boyce. Do you remember him? He no. ran for governor? No. Oh, great guy. Great Democrat. His son is now... Um, like a, a AG somewhere. I mean, big legal family. Great friends of Bob and Claudia. And Jim started working in local elections. And so did Jim didn't write jingles though? No, I just remember that because I was a kid. I like that song. I have some political jingles stuck in my head that will never leave. To yes, pin a rose on me, pin a rose on me. I'm for Roseman. You remember that one? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> No. All right. Yeah. So uh, you are going to Fayetteville to look at some property that he's thinking about buying, and you go through a little town to have lunch, and there's a bank there, the Bank of Kingston, and it's for sale. Yes. But he buys that bank. Yeah, he bought that bank. Not just anybody can buy a bank. Or did he get a partner? Uh, yeah, Steve Smith in Bill Clinton's office was his partner in that. So who's the governor at this time? Bill Clinton. Oh, so this is years later. Jim was the kind of person that was always looking for something to do, to buy, to resell, to make into something else. It was a passion. And <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, he was always looking for something to re- reconfigure. And this little bank was adorable. It really was. It, was. it had a big ball safe in the window of the bank. Back in the old days... If some if fire or something broke out and all the money and the stuff was in the big ball, it the bottom would melt. It had a little melty bottom, and it would roll out the window and down the street. Now say that again. Okay, it's a ball. It's, it's huge. The, it's it's as big room, as that right? door. Okay, it, oh, no, as big as a regular door. It's seven round, feet. Though. As seven big feet as that round. wall. As big as that wall right there, and. You look in the window, and there it is, and it's black, and it's gold-lettered, Bank of Kingston with a little gold handle thing, and it's on a plateau-looking thing, stand, that is supposed to melt in case of fire, and it's in the window so that it rolls out of the bank and is saved. We just thought that was the coolest thing ever. I still think that's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) I've never heard of anything like that. So it's on a wax base, I guess. Some kind of base that melts before the safe does. Okay, what do y'all do with it? Leave it at the window? Uh, uh, Of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. And we found um, at the, they had taken a, a chainsaw and sawed off the teller's windows, you know, and they were like the ones down in the post office here in downtown Little Rock. They were those brass, beautiful. Mm. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm, talking mm-hmm. And he had them put back up, and it was... You found them in the basement or it, somewhere? It, uh, in the back of the bank, uh-huh. yes. And the, it had one phone when we bought it. It was on the wall. And anyone who used the phone went over to the wall and said, Bank of Kingston. So we had all new phones and all computers put in. It was fun. That it sounds like a blast. It was bringing it into the 21st century and it was really fun and the guy who ran it gary bunch was like just the coolest guy ever i mean you just couldn't meet anyone um he rodeoed he rode bulls he was good looking he was funny he was macho he was he knew everyone in madison county he knew everyone who had money at the bank and everyone trusted him he was from an old old family was he smart too i guess oh yeah he was Yes. Everything. He was just perfect. Did Whitewater go after him, too? Please tell me no, then. I don't think so. I think They went through everybody in your past. You know, you asked me if he was intelligent. I think he was intelligent and just stayed out 
of all of that. He wasn't in politics and he wasn't in any of those things. Yeah, but Whitewater, when they went when they came to town, they didn't care if you were in politics or not. They went after everybody. It seemed like that even barely knew you. They were like, well, we're just going to go or or Bill Clinton or any of y'all. Yeah, I ruined a lot of lives. In the trial that that, that I had, um, people got on the stand and wept and sobbed over oh. the fact they'd lost everything they had trying to defend themselves, trying to defend themselves. and then not convicted of anything. Yes. Just charged and then your life ruined and nothing came of it and it was i think a tactic to make people lie and it absolutely was yes all right this is a great place to take a break when we come back we'll continue our conversation with miss susan mcdougall known as the woman that wouldn't talk during the whitewater trial of the mid-90s still to come just what she said how many people's lives were ruined by the whitewater trial the story of Madison Guarantee, which became the target of the Whitewater investigation and ruined a lot of people's lives there. The Whitewater real estate development, what was it? It was pretty simple. We're going to tell you what it is. What Susan was accused of, what Susan was convicted of, what she learned in her two-year incarceration in seven different jails. A torturous tactic by the prosecution known as diesel therapy. And last, what she's doing today and why she chose to come back to Arkansas. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she embraced the internet and rebranded her company as simply FlagAndBanner.com. In 2004, she became an early blogger, since then, she has founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, began publishing her magazine, Brave, and in 2016, branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcast. In 2020, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years. If you'd like to sponsor this show or get involved with any of Carrie McCoy's enterprises, send an email to me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Susan McDougall, the defendant and the woman that wouldn't talk in the 1994 Whitewater investigation and trial. Before the break, we talked about Susan being from Camden, being an Army brat, about meeting Jim McDougal, who kicked in the door and impressed her with his macho-ness, then how she ended up getting married at the Goat House and then ended up owning a bank in Kingston. And that's just the beginning of the story. Wait till you hear the good stuff. <laughs> so now we own a bank, in, a small bank in Kingston, which I'm kind of jealous of. That sounded like a lot of fun to redo. Are you living in that little city? Oh, yes, yes. We moved up there. Okay, but Jim sees an opportunity for a business in Little Rock because he's missing, I think, the big city. And he opened up, if he founded, I guess he founded, Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan. Tell us how that came about. Um, Madison actually was for sale. It was one little small savings and loan in a very small town in Arkansas, which I can't remember. And he bought it and branched it to a lot of different cities. And he did the major bank uh, savings and loan. He bought that building and redid it, and it was the the major in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. Yes. It was very impressive. At the opening, we talked about how Jim was bipolar. So when he had upswings, he had major upswings. And one, he had a customer, I think, who was a Mercedes dealership, and he wanted all the people in his in his uh, that worked for him, the tellers and everybody, to have Mercedes in the parking lot. He bought people a lot of things. He bought first. He bought them clothes from um, oh, the lovely store for men here in Little Rock that Mr. Wicks. Mr. Wicks, yes, Mr. Wicks, and he bought everyone gorgeous clothes to work in the bank, and they they loved that. Well, I guess so. I, I mean they looked really good, and uh, they were not used to dressing that way, and they just loved Jim for that. Now this is a this is so opposite of him not wanting to put on airs, and yet. He's giving these really expensive clothes to the people that to, work for his To bank. young people. To young people. To okay. young people. To sort of uh, 
set a standard or to help them to see how they might empower. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. That was what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Ernie Dumas wrote that Jim looked like he had his clothes thrown on him from a distance. So <laughs> he did. They think, hung on him like sacks. I know. I, I don't think you can say he was dressing himself that way because he always uh, dressed for comfort. He he was like Winston Churchill. He didn't want anything touching his cuticle, as he called it. His cuticle? Is that your the, skin? The skin, yes. Isn't that funny? <laughs> That's one of the, you know, the quoting things and the knowing poetry and the knowing literature. Just lovely you know, I don't like anything touching my cuticle, as Winston Churchill would say. You know, that's just <laughs> lovely. I I thought that was a wonderful way to live. Yeah. So he buys everybody clothes. Then he puts all the. Then he buys them Mercedes. But he but but the employees actually make the note payments. Yeah, they pick their car and they decide what they're going to pay and all of that. Jim introduced them to the guy that owned the. Mercedes place. And he still owns the Bank of Kingston? Yes. And he's still doing real estate? Yes. And he's still... Actually, the savings and loan was purchased to uh, finance real estate purchases for people throughout the state of Arkansas uh, because it was hard at that time for some folks to get... uh, Loans. loans yeah, yeah it was uh, money was tied it was hard and he was going to have a real estate place for the people it was going to be for the people to own property yeah it's kind of a vertical integration in business he's gonna sell the money then take you over to his bank and then his bank's gonna loan you the money and he's gonna improve people's lives and his life too and everybody's i mean it's, it's building a big community the making money from it was not the big priority, unfortunately. One of the things that the independent council never found was any money. You know, I kept saying, where's the money if, if we are these people who've done all these things? But the profit was never it. It was always involving people and showing them how to make money, how to take a piece of land, how to carve it up, how to put water in or roads, and, and then to buy these... I mean, we, we sold lots to people who had never dreamed of having a five-acre five mm-hmm. lot with a house on it. Yeah. And then we introduced them to builders who knew that we were going to finance the end product for them. And the builder would come and make that design that they wanted. I mean, it was people who never had that dream before. And I get that from where Jim's coming from. I love the creative process of business. It's the building of something and the hooking it up. And, you know, you don't, there's a lot of things you do in business that are, that are labors of love, that are fun and that are creative, that are not necessarily the best business decision. I've had it lots was, of bankers tell me they go, that's not really a good idea to buy the Taborian Hall in downtown Little Rock, Carry. That's a really bad idea. I'm like, well, it's a labor of love. I can't help it. I want to redo it. Yes, Absolutely. And it was the 70s and early 80s when um, and it was we were fun. very idealistic. We were very idealistic. And it, it's interesting that you said that about Madison Guarantee because after all the combing through of everything by Whitewater, they never found anything but a misdemeanor for an, uh, an appraisal that was a little too high that was done by a subcontractor. Yeah, it, it was never there was anything. N- there was no there there. Kenneth Starr went on TV and said Madison Guarantee is the most corrupt institution in the country, and they never found one thing. No. They asked me to come and testify to uh, Congress about what had been found, and so I got to go sit and look at all the findings. There was literally nothing. Which I don't think most people realize that. I just assumed it had so much negative publicity. I just assumed there was something there. There had to be a smoking gun. I mean, I never knew what it was, but I just assumed it was bad because it, of the bad press. I think it was just the first of a long line of uh, bad information out there, just like we have now, where people don't believe that the coronavirus is real. And Fake they news. don't think, yes, mm-hmm. it's just all of that information, you can drown people in it. And I do think that people believe there was something there, but that one sentence tells you why I went to jail rather than testify Mm -hmm. because I'm a person who knew there was nothing there what was your position at the bank um wife (laughs) (laughs) 
You didn't work at the work. You didn't work at the bank at all. No. Oh. No, I never had a position at the bank. I sold real estate, but I was not a banker. No. Yeah, you just did things when Jim told you to do something. So your life, your life with Jim was starting to unravel. You were starting to realize that he's got a problem. He's bipolar. You didn't know it was bipolar. I don't think yet. Did you? He bought an island, sight unseen. That was the beginning of the crack for me. He bought Campobello Island. Where is and that? It's in it's near Can- it's in Canada, and it's uh, formerly owned by. Well, it had a house there, where uh, President Roosevelt had been bathing, and and their house is still there, in 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 perfect shape with everything in it that was ever there, and we went to see that, and well, after we bought it. We went to see that. That was lovely. And the island was lovely. The so, Bay of Fundy is in is around that mm, island. I know what that is. Is it, it developed? Absolutely. Is it developed now? It. Is it developed now? I have no idea. The, but the name itself is enough to like make that? me have <laughs> complete breakdown. Why did you not like that if it was lovely fact, and everything was beautiful? The whole conversation's giving me rash. a complete breakdown. It's giving you a rash? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm inarticulate, to say the least. Um, he saw that island for sale, and he looked at the price and at what it was, and he said, we're buying it. And he sent one of the people from the bank up there, and they bought it and came home and said, we have it. It's ours. Whatever happened to it? He sell it or lose it? or? Oh, I don't know. I really don't. Um, we sold a lot of it. We had a, you know, we developed some of it. Oh. Mm-hmm. So you said that's the crack. That was the beginning of what are we doing? Wasn't Jim... And I was Were you older. And Jim living together? I was older, how, you have to remember. How old are you now? I am probably, that was, let's see, I got married in 76, and I left in 86. So I was 30-something. Mm-hmm. You're starting to be a I'm woman. S- I'm starting to realize I might need to say something. Yeah. I need a voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I probably should be saying something right now. And it was scary. So what's the first thing you did when you left? You moved out, told him, what do you say? Um, I think he helped me out. He was manic, and he was having a good time. Oh, he was on the top of it. Yeah, life was really good for him. You don't want to be with me. You're out of here. No, it was like, go, have a good time, and, you know, this is what you want, and I want what you want, and if someone falls out of love with you, there's just not much you can do about it. Had he saying he'd fallen out of love with you? No, he was saying I had, Oh, and he was saying there's just not much to be done. You know, we don't want to argue or anything. So I think he helped me out with my luggage. So you start wow. dating. And it was friendly. It was mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. And we talked every day, and it was it was angry. It wasn't. Mm. And I worried about him because I knew that he was manic, and I knew that bad things were Well, you happening. loved him. Yes, absolutely. But you start dating Pat. This is when you start dating Pat. You've known Pat for a long time. Well, we knew each other. He worked there, and we knew each other, and he was reasonable. And it was such a, it was such a, it was such a relief to talk to someone reasonable, and he loved Jim, he loved him, and so did I. And we talked about what was happening, and he was aware of it. Most people, when you try to talk to them about someone who is manic and the things that are going on, they look at you like you're crazy. But Pat knew what was going on. He was worried also, and so we built a friendship really around worrying about Jim. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You're such a nice person. I cannot believe all the stuff that's happening. Okay, let's just keep going. <laughs> you see, I told you, people don't believe it. So you and Pat decide to move to California. Yes. You're you're going off. Jim's fine. You're leaving. Are you divorced yet? No, no, we didn't divorce forever. Okay. So the first job you you get in California is with Occidental Petroleum, and uh, you went. I think you went to an employment. Uh, uh, agency to get the job, I think. And the yeah, I wasn't you... wanting anything, you know, really to do except file things. I can remember saying, I would like to put pieces of paper in file folders because I am so traumatized by all of what's going on. Ten um, years with Jim. Yeah, I was traumatized by the divorce. I was traumatized by what was happening to, uh, he was hiring a lot of uh, de- uh, people who were 
looking to make a big bunch of money. And we had never been like that. It was never our goal to make a lot of money. But people were coming into the business that were having dreams that were about making a lot of money. And it was scary to me. It was not what we had always been about. Mm-hmm. And so to- I was really traumatized when we left. And I, I told uh, everybody, I said, if I can get a job just filing pieces of paper, I will be so happy. As I've been selling real estate, I, you know, my last year, I made a lot of money selling real estate. Yeah. Commissions, yes. not being paid for anything, but on commission. You, and I didn't want that anymore. I just wanted a peaceful life. You fill out a resume with that um, with that agent, employment agency <clears throat> that comes back to haunt you. Not really. I thought it did. Well, it was supposed to. Oh, uh, they tried to make it haunt <laughs> you. They tried to make it haunt me. But unfortunately for them, I told the truth. I said, I needed a job. So I told them that I could do secretarial work. And they said, you, you put down here that you were a secretary. And I said, well, yeah, that's the job I wanted. I thought I'd better say I had some experience. And they said, what was your experience? I said, well, I'd sold real estate. I had helped build the bank. I had done marketing stuff. I had done a lot of things. I didn't want to do that anymore. I just wanted to work in a peaceful place. And the jury all looked at me like, what is so wrong about her saying that she so let's was a secretary? Li- let's What's tell the tired. listeners that in the Whitewater uh, trial, they tried to call. They tried to say Susan is this notorious liar. She lied on her resume, which is who doesn't? First of all, uh, yeah. well, who who lies down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like I was saying. Yeah, I can run AT&T. It was like, yeah, just please can I type and answer the phone because I'm traumatized. I need a quiet place. So when I held that up, I held it up like this in the jury room. And I said, yes, I absolutely lied on this. I have never been a secretary, but I thought I might be able to figure it out. (laughs) And they loved loved it. They They talked to me about it later. You know, that jury actually came and had dinner with me and came to Little Rock for the Little Rock trial. That jury followed me and for the rest of my life. Wow. And I held that piece of paper up, the fraudulent, horrible Susan McDougall who lied down. Um, and they, they just thought it was unbelievable how they had made such a big deal of it. But well, the, you have to if you have nothing. Right. So your Pat, though, he gets a job with conductor... Zubin, how do you spell, say, say Zubin's last name? Meta. Meta. Mm-hmm. So he's a famous conductor. Charming, good-looking. Zuby Baby was his nickname. Zuby Baby. But he's also an absentee husband. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So his wife lives in California, and she's got all the money, and she's got all the prestige, and her husband is this big hot dog uh, conductor. Oh, she's fabulously beautiful, too. She is uh, in Jason and the Argonauts, she is the goddess in that movie. Oh, oh she oh, cool. and she was in Bewitched. She was Darren's girlfriend who was so gorgeous, and Samantha was uh, angry at her. And she was in Dean Martin films and all of those spy films. She was absolutely fabulously beautiful, tall, good looking, blonde, I guess, smart, um, blonde, yes. And so uh, Pat's working for her, and he decides to go off to get his law degree and to leave California. And where does he go to get to start studying for law? Uh, the University of Michigan. So he goes to Michigan, and he's been her assistant for a year or so. And he says, you want she my job? She does real estate. She, oh, she, she owns and sells real estate. Okay. And so he's going to leave that position and, and ask you if you want it. No. Okay. He leaves the position. She's met me because he works there, uh-huh. and she likes me. We strike up a friendship, and we do a lot of things together before Pat leaves. And when he leaves, she said, "I, you know, I have been dreaming of you coming to work for me." And um, she's on a mountain with the gorillas in the mist. I'm trying to talk like I remember it. What he said. Mm-hmm. She's on a mountain with gorillas in the mist. You in know her what dream. I'm talking about? No, dream. no, no. In the actuality of it, she is in Africa oh. where they see the gorillas. Uh-huh. They write about the gorillas in the mist. Mm-hmm. 
and this came to me, that you need to come and work with me. I mean, who can say no to that? But I should have, because all I wanted was a peaceful life, right? Mm -hmm. That did not work out well. Describe a day with Nancy. Uh, She had a lot of rental property. Tom Hanks lived in one of the houses. And we would go over and see if things needed to be done or talk to them about, you know, what they needed or would you like a larger fish pond or, you know, whatever it was. Whatever it was, we, we were ladies who went. Even though she was crazy, you liked her. But you, you... Oh, we were very close. Oh, my gosh. Y'all did everything together. Well, that was by... That was not by my choice, but yes. She wouldn't let you out of her sight. No. She made you sleep with her sometimes. I mean, not just no. like bunking parties and... No, we never slept. I thought you had to spend the night there sometimes. Like no, no. She, she came and I was in an apartment and she had the movers come and pick my things up and put them in her house. She had a huge home. So you started noticing she was a little quirky and clingy and you decided i need to get my life back and you start talking about wanting to leave she was not going to go for that no that was the that really in fact her attorney said to me this is not going to end well she gets what she wants and this is not going to go well but so how many years did you know but i was an adult and i figured i could go right how many years did you work for her oh not that many i don't know Five, maybe. Oh, that's a pretty long time. And then you go home to visit your mother, and she tells you that somebody called from California. Okay, I'm in Michigan, and my mother calls me and says, someone wants to know, uh, someone from the independent counsel's office is calling and wanting to know where you are. And I was um, working at the university, and it was, that was lovely. Loved being there. And my mom called and said, somebody from the independent counsel's office wants to talk with you. And uh, I had been reading in the newspaper that they were investigating President Clinton. And I knew that I didn't want any part of that. So I never called them back. So did you get the Whitewater invest? So you got the call from your mother about Whitewater. Had you heard about the Meta trial yet? So Whitewater was first and then the Meta trial Mm -hmm. came second. Because they were hooked together. Yeah, which we later found out that they were all. Whitewater had to have happened first. For the Meta thing to have happened. Right. All right. This is a great place to take a break. <laughs> but we're going to solve that riddle when we come back. I'm worn out. No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're just getting started. We'll be back to Carrie McCoy's Susan McDougal interview. This is only part one of a two-part interview with Susan McDougal. We'll continue again next week and in just a second after we remind you that red, white, and blue are the colors of summer in the United States all the way through September. Americans celebrate patriotic holidays, which include Memorial Day and Flag Day, Armed Forces Day and Independence Day, Labor Day, Patriot Day. There's no other season that gives you more opportunities to decorate your home with the red, white, and blue. And if you subscribe to the Water Cooler Weekly email from flagandbanner.com, you'll get tips almost every week on a new decorating idea. And Brave Magazine, which comes out from flagandbanner.com, also is filled with not only recipes and interesting articles, but other decorating ideas. It's flagandbanner.com. Now back to Carrie McCoy. All right, you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Susan McDougal, defendant of the 1994 Whitewater investigation and notably known as the woman that wouldn't talk. Your mother has called you and said, the Whitewater investigation is going on, and you said, yeah, I saw that on TV, and they called you, and you were like, well, I'm not going to call them back. No, it was really a blip in the New York Times. It was a very small story, like on the 10, page 10, that said an investigation has been started on President Clinton and a small real estate company in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I saw that and thought, well, that's not good. And then Mother said they were calling me, and I thought, you know, I don't really have much to say. You know, nothing happened that I know. So in the beginning, the OIC was investigating Jim and his savings and loan company, or were they investigating Whitewater? How did Madison Guarantee end up in the Whitewater investigation? Bill Clinton and Hillary bought a piece of land with a house on it from the Whitewater Development Corporation as an investment vacation home thing. He he owned a lot and a house, a vacation home. How did you first end up meeting with the OIC about Madison Guarantee? Tell us about that first meeting. 
Um, I was asked to come down, and uh, I, I think I looked through attorneys in Arkansas through a book, and uh, Bobby McDaniel was listed as one of the best trial lawyers in Arkansas. And I called him, and I said, they've asked me to come and talk with them, and I wondered if you'd go with me. And he said he would. So you were already like, this is scary. No, not really. I was going to go by myself. Um, and I think someone intervened and said, you probably should have Probably your boyfriend, you. Pat, who's a lawyer. Maybe. But and he wasn't He wasn't really on top of all that fearfulness either. Yeah, we neither one of us really thought it would be anything because we'd both been there. And when you know that there's no there there, you're not really afraid of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, you meet in Arkansas? You go. You come from Michigan? You go down? Were you living in Michigan at the time? I came down to, yes, I came down to Little Rock. And Bobby, whom I never met, met me at the, uh, uh, somewhere here in Little Rock, one of the office buildings. And um, I called Pat and I said, he has on cowboy boots with his suit. And he said, you've got to get over it. You're in Arkansas. I said, okay, I'm over it. Okay, fine. And <laughs> so I went in, and I will never forget how personable he was and how kind he was to me. Um, I didn't think we were going to get along that well, and we really did. And he, I was about to go in the door of the building, of the room where they were all waiting on us, and he stopped me and said, um, just remember, truth rings like a bell. People know it when they hear it. Never forget that. And so we went in to talk with them. Had no idea what we were going into, and there were a lot of them in there. There were probably, I'm going to say, seven to ten people on one side of the table, like on the side of that table. FBI agents, OIC people, um, lawyers all from washington what were all the, washington lawyers what were the questions FBI. what were the questions they were well they asking? didn't ask me any questions i thought they were going to i was excited to be able to tell them you know i was there and i didn't say anything and all that there was a stack of papers in the middle of the table large stacks of papers and i sat down and first thing he said was let's not all be on this side of the table why don't you know, we, some of us go over there and be with her, and then some of us come. I said, that's okay. That's all right. I'm fine. And so then I said, I'd like to talk with you all. And Bobby said, Susan would like to tell you that she never saw anything illegal or, you know, unethical even that the Clintons did. So we just want to start there. And he took the papers and he pushed them aside with his hand, and he said, I'd really not like to have to go through those. Um, we would like to make you an offer. And the offer is um, universal immunity. And uh, we do our jobs well. We've done this a lot. This is something that we've talked about. We'd like to offer you that in exchange for your testimony. And uh, I said something like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know anything that I could offer you. In testimony, I never saw anything that was wrong or illegal or anything. And I said, he said, uh, we believe we can convict you of multiple felonies. And he had his hand on top of the papers. And he said, we believe we have the evidence. And I said, well, I, I'd like to see that. And he said, no, that, that's not necessary today. We're here to talk about this offer that we're making you. That's just not going to happen because I don't know anything that anyone has done illegally. I was so naive. I just can't tell you. And I told them I did not, I was not going to be doing that. It was not the way I thought things worked. And I would like to just answer what they thought I'd done wrong. And they didn't say anything. And I said, well, we're, we're, we're leaving. So we got up to leave. And they must have leaked that I was going to be there because we didn't. And there were a ton of television cameras out there to film me leaving being questioned by the Office of Independent Counsel. And I wish every person accused of something could see my face. I mean, it is so naive. 
I say something like, you know, this is really wrong. Things like this don't happen in America. Um, I believe in the justice system, and I'm sure that everything will work out just fine. And I have these big eyes and this little innocent face, and it's so embarrassing to look back on it, knowing what was coming. And probably everyone knew what was coming who was involved but me. And I just really thought at the time, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, that you're going to tell me that I have felonies that you're going to prove and send me to prison. And I know it's not true. It's just not true. And so I never believed any of it. And I never spoke to them again. You didn't? No. What was the next thing that happened? I told them I wasn't going to speak with them again. No. So Um, you go back to Michigan? Listen, my father was on Omaha Beach on D-Day for our country. My family believed in that. There's no way I was going to accept that they were going to tell me I had broken the law and put me in jail and make me testify against somebody when I knew it was not true. And so I really thought when I walked out that day that that was it. It was over. I had told them. Yeah. And there was no proof anywhere that I had done anything wrong, which later proves to be true. Six years later. Yes. <laughs> so you go back to Michigan after that? And just, yeah, like, it's, everything's going to be fine. Tell Pat, it's, there's nothing. It's, everything's going to be fine. When's the next ball drop? When I was indicted. How I long? was at work. Um, and uh, somebody, oh, uh, a reporter for ABC News called me and said, um, there's a indictment. 20-page indictment with your name on it. Um, Would you like to make a comment? And I said, do you want to tell me more about that? (laughs) Would you like to tell me a little bit more about that? And and they said, well, we're outside. We can meet you and talk with you. And I said, no, that won't be necessary, but thank you for calling. You didn't even know. I had no idea. That's the end of part one of the Susan McDougall interview with Carrie McCoy on Up In Your Business. Next week, we'll follow up from the point of the indictment being issued and also tackle these subjects. Susan's unexpected pardon from President Clinton, how she has started over, what she's doing today. To our listeners, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 